Welcome to Education Suspended, a podcast focused on exploring, engaging, and dialoguing with those in education who are passionate about changing the status quo and evolving the archaic system we have inherited. Education Suspended is a production of Intricate Roots Educational Consulting Services. Our editor and production manager is Katie Kunin. Our producer is Jamie Higa, and our music is provided by Poets Row. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Education Suspended, episode 27. I'm Jessica Pfeiffer, one of your co-hosts. Thanks for joining us. Today, we sit down and connect with April Prescott, who is from Edmonton, Canada. Steve and I have actually both had the pleasure of training a couple times up in Canada with April, and she's got a lot of great things to share. We kind of go back to this conversation that we've had before about mindfulness and what does that really mean? And I really appreciate this conversation because essentially April comes at it from a lens of, you know, mindfulness is something that we're all born with, right? It's something that we all do. And there's so many important components as it pertains to education, providing us with a contemplative lens, curiosity, its role in play, which I'm really glad we talked about because I think, I mean, I realize I'm biased, but I think our kids need a lot more time to play including our high schoolers. We also begin to understand and unpack the theme that representation matters, right? Especially as we're talking about self-care techniques, mindfulness techniques, that we want to be able to see ourselves in those that are teaching us how to do these practices. This is a conversation that we actually had at the beginning of this journey of making these podcasts. April is one of our first guests, but again, we decided to hold off on this and it just feels like a good time to release this episode. I think everyone is highly attuned to the reality that kind of sitting in the muck doesn't feel good, but there's some stuff that we can take from this and there's things that we can utilize to make this system better and work for everybody. So that being said, everybody, welcome to Education Suspended. Uh, Sit back and enjoy our conversation with April Prescott. Hi, April. Welcome to Education Suspended. It's good to see you. Good to see you guys. Steve and I have had the honor of working with April a couple couple times up in Canada. And so we're like, we got to stay as professional and on task as possible. <laughs> we're not sure how that's going to go because whenever we're together, we're all over the place. So hopefully this, this podcast comes together, but thank you for giving us your time. We're excited to talk with you. What do you mean? Yeah. April said she won't even, she won't even listen if it isn't half chaotic. So that's, yeah. She's like, let's listen, just... there's got to be some chaos to this. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, well, let's just start. April, if you can introduce yourself to our listeners, tell them what you do, how you got there, and if you feel comfortable, reflect a little bit even on your own experience as a student. Sure. So my name is April Prescott. I live in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, born and raised here. And currently I am the inclusive education coordinator at Aboriginal Head Start, which is an indigenous um, education organization funded by the Public Health Agency of Canada and Alberta Education to provide a head start to First Nations, Métis and Inuit children in Edmonton, which is an urban setting. On the the other side of my life coin is I'm also a meditation and mindfulness teacher. So I completed training through Mindful Schools. I also traveled to Bali to complete my 200-hour yoga teacher training. And then I've also completed a 500-hour yoga teacher training out of a yoga school out of Colorado, actually. And I am currently helping others see how mindfulness might be of benefit to them um, and meditation. So I teach meditation and mindfulness weekly. Even through the pandemic, we moved online to provide people that opportunity 
opportunity. And so I provide that through kind of a coaching model where I work with people. And most recently, I, uh, with entrepreneurs, actually, they're super stressed. So they kind of <laughs> seek me out to help with that. And uh, so that's pretty much what I do with my, with my professional hats. And my personal hat is I'm actually back to being a student. And I know you asked about reflecting on being a student. So I've started my master's in counseling psychology. So I'm, I'm studying that as well. And it's been very interesting, um, remembering what it was like to do my first degree, and then now doing this completely different, you know, style of online learning and how I used to be a student and what works and what doesn't, which was very much just fumbling through, like, how do I take notes? And what do I, I, I don't even remember how to be a student. It was very interesting, continues to be interesting. Anyway, how I got here was, I always knew I was going to be a teacher when I was a kiddo, you know, I would be in the basement teaching to my stuffed animals using the the dartboard chalkboard as my <laughs> as my teacher chalkboard. I grew up around some educators. My mom worked in schools as an EA. So it kind of felt really natural. And I was always just drawn to teaching. Um, I had one teacher, Mrs. Scott, and she was really pivotal. She taught both me and my younger sister. And I remember kind of, we got to do this like job shadowing day. And so I went and job shadowed her and she was teaching grade two. And I was just like, I, I just know that I want to do this. So I got my bachelor of education from University of Alberta and then started teaching. And I gravitated towards a program here in Edmonton called Connect Society, where they provide early intervention services for children who are affected by hearing loss. So whether they have hearing loss or someone within their family has hearing loss. So I taught there for 10 years. um, And that's essentially how I met both of you was because I took my NME training uh, while I was there because I, I witnessed a lot of medical trauma within the children in my care. So I ended up teaching quite a few years of children who experienced hearing loss and other exceptional needs, a lot of them medical challenges. And it was during that time that I experienced burnout twice. And I was just seeking kind of a way where how how do I continue to do this job that I love and not want to leave it? Because I'd already, you know, I was in it I was about six years in by that point, um, really, really intensive work where, you know, you're, I was helping kids learn how to walk and toilet training, teaching kids how to eat, you know, let alone like, this is just basic level functioning beyond anything, any kind of academic, you know, school readiness that you would typically do in a preschool program. So I was just kind of searching on, on the internet one day, and I came across this program called the Summer Institute for Educators at the Greater Good Science Center at UC Berkeley. And it's actually, it's an actual faculty where they study the science of well-being and they had a scholarship option. So I applied for the scholarship option and I got it. So I traveled to California for six days and I got to study the science of well-being with all of these other educators in this beautiful campus that actually used to be a deaf school. It was like all of the, like this whole like serendipity, like it was amazing. It was during my time there. So at the time there, it was six days and each half day was focused on a different area of research. So for example, one of the days was the research of awe. So like what makes us go into this like, wow, life is bigger than us kind of thinking, which I love. That's one of my, one of my favorite practices. And so one of the days was focused on meditation, specifically mindfulness meditation. And that's where I met my current meditation teachers, Chris and Megan. They used to own mindful schools out also out of California. So when I left there, I was like, oh my word, I need more of this in my life. 
I liked that it was based in evidence also. It wasn't, it wasn't kind of stuck up in the woo-woo and there's, there's lots of good stuff that comes out of the woo-woo, but to start in being an educator and bringing it back to my job, I just wanted to have that kind of basis within research. So I came back and I signed up for the Mindful Schools Mindful Education Program, which is a year-long, very intensive program where you learn how to teach mindfulness to children and adults. It all kind of wrapped itself together to be this like really solid foundation from which I could continue to teach. I did end up moving into admin. So I'm in admin now, which was the best decision for my mental health, but then also continuing like my life outside of work and who I was outside of work. And that continues to this day. So that's kind of what brings us to this conversation. Can you clarify like what, when you say, you know, meditation, mindfulness or mindfulness, what, what does that mean for you in education? So I think it's important to define both first and my training comes from a secular version. So because it was um, created to be safe for schools, they recognized that they had to peel away any kind of lingering, say a religious practice, for example. Um, They really wanted to make the language and the practices accessible to everybody. So it didn't matter, you know, how you entered into the practice and what beliefs systems that you came into it with. So it makes it pretty safe. So mindfulness is kind of this umbrella term that we use for practicing present moment awareness without judgment, hopefully with some compassion, and you do it over and over and over again. And that's what makes it a practice. And it's just returning back to the present moment. So it's really an awareness practice which is rooted in self-awareness because we can have awareness that always faces outward. Most of us are pretty good at that, but it's actually the turning inward. So that self-awareness practice. Meditation is a practice that can help us become more aware. And it was really through my trauma-informed practice where I recognized that meditation is not for everybody at all times because sometimes it can actually be harmful to really turn inward and look at yourself depending on your situation. So I really find that when I took these practices back into school, because I started my trauma-informed journey before the mindfulness journey. So it really informed my practice of just like, okay, because I think a lot of people leave some of these trainings and they're like, this is a this is a magical thing. Like if we just go into schools and we just teach kids mindfulness, sometimes it's almost like, let's beat them over the head with it. You know, like let's make kids more mindful and let's teach <laughs> yeah. kids how to meditate and let's, you know, let's employ yoga teachers in the schools. All of that would be great as long as it's passed through this lens of like appropriateness. And it's not always appropriate. Like I work with some clients, even as adults, where they're like, I want to learn how to meditate. And once I, you know, kind of do a bit of an interview process and I'm like, actually, I don't think it's appropriate for you right now because it can be more harmful if you don't have a support system. And so I also think that mindfulness in schools can be a really good way to to help further build any community that already exists and or build a new community where we really talk about a community of practice for those of us that that I practice with. Um, I think it's really important to be able to have that support network because what happens during mindfulness and or meditation is you are choosing to pay attention to whatever comes to the surface. You don't get to choose that. So whatever comes to the surface and it's right, you know, it's rising up in you. And then there's this emotional wave where you're just like, what do I do with this? And if you're not held within some form of a community, whether that's one-on-one, whether that's in a group, whether that's in a classroom where people are informed about this happening, then you're left with this huge wave of emotion and you don't know Mm -hmm. what to do with it. So that's also kind of, I always kind of pump the brakes on that where everyone's like, this is great. Let's throw it at every school. And I'm like, maybe not. (laughs) Like, I think that there's a process. And I also think that when it comes to mindfulness in schools, there's a lot of great programs out there, but unfortunately there's a lot of programs that think they're great because they can hammer a weekend training of mindfulness into teachers 
and then they send them off. And I always remember this quote from Marianne Williamson, where she's like, when you're doing the work of mindfulness or meditation, you have a person's psyche in your hands. Mm-hmm. And that is not a del- like that's delicate. And I think that sometimes people forget that where they see this mindfulness or meditation as just one more tool that you can pull out of your teacher toolbox. And to a certain degree, it is. But that tool unlocks a psyche. That's crazy to me. And I'm like, yeah. and then people go to like a literally a 25 hour meditation teacher training, and then they go off and they're teaching people. I don't think that's okay. I think that there's a lot of work that needs to be done for it to become a bit more of a... Um, continued practice within schools. How do you or how have you tried to build that intentional network of support? Because that seems crucial to me. So one kind of caveat is that after I graduated from mindful schools, great program, I, I never wanted to teach in schools. So first and foremost, I think preschoolers are naturally mindful. It's not something that I was going to go in and, and have this structured mindfulness program. And what I find is that mindfulness does kind of trickle down and ripple out. So if I am as mindful as I can be, my kids are going to learn from that. And my staff are going to learn from that. And my parents are going to benefit from that. So I didn't really seek to create too much of a mindfulness community within my school. So where I decided to start um, creating a community was actually outside of work. So how we did that was we just did it. I think that there's this, this piece that sometimes people miss is that they wait for the opportunity for someone to give them the permission. And so we took it upon ourselves to give ourselves the permission. And so we partnered with another organization here in Edmonton called Urban Yeg, and they're actually a community of photographers, but they started to take the lens of mental health because one of their members took their own life. So they would gather together and learn photography together. And we connected with them because we had this connection through mental health, because we do believe that meditation and mindfulness can be beneficial for mental health purposes. If again, done through this lens of safety and awareness and appropriateness. So they're like, oh, well, we have a space. You can use it for free. So we just started providing sits, we call them, where people could come and join in community and sit in a circle and practice meditation and mindfulness. So we honestly just created it ourselves. We're just like, you know what? If people want to come, they'll come. So Shay and I, if it's just us, then it's just us because it's that connection that people heal through. We heal through community. And so like the mindfulness is just the reason why we get together. It's actually sitting in a circle and and talking about stuff that, that helps contribute to people's well-being. So that was kind of our goal. And we achieved that just by simply making the decision to do it. I want to jump a little bit into, well, there's two things, but let me start with the first one. So what I appreciate thus far is that you're, you've identified kind of the self-paced, right? Like we can give ourselves permission to go where we want to go. And I mm-hmm. think what comes up is, and I've had you know, experiences with this before and and settings that I've worked with of, you know, let's just say the school wants to take on increasing self-care for their staff, right? Like this is a big thing that they focus on. And so what they do is like, okay, well, we're going to, we're going to get everyone 50% off at the local yoga studio. And it's going to be this phenomenal thing. And everyone's going to be grateful and we're doing all this stuff for our adults. Well, it often backfires because I think they miss this cultural perspective of like, well, that's different for everybody, right? What people do to, to refill is different. So I'm wondering, April, if you can speak about where does that fit in with this mindfulness and meditative practice? Like how is this represented across different cultures? How do you bring that to the table? Absolutely. So if you were to say, do a Google search of mindfulness, mindfulness teachers, meditation teachers, it's primarily white people, first and foremost. And I think that that comes from kind of the Westernization of yoga. And that's, that's how a lot of people enter into that kind of sphere. 
it also depends, I, I think, too, on where you learn your practice from, that it's already going to be laced with, with a culture. So for example, I always make sure to let people know that although I teach from a secular perspective as much as possible, so that anyone can see themselves within the practice, these practices come from Asian contemplative cultures that are thousands of years old. So I think that there's this, that, that we need to honor that, right? Even the practice of yoga, most people don't really understand that the westernized exercise practice that is yoga here is completely different than if you go to like an actual direct lineage yoga training, which I did, where yes, the dhana or the movement practice is just one piece of the whole. You go to a yoga practice and mine, we sing kirtan, which is this traditional singing and chanting. And most people, you would never be able to do that in a school, especially in the United States, because, it, because there's this link to Hinduism, there's this link to religion. So when we look at the cultures from which these contemplative practices come from, that, that can be scary to an administration, right? They're thinking, oh, you know, this is based in religion. I think from my own perspective, people have asked me why I didn't start teaching um, mindfulness at Aboriginal Head Start. And I said, well, because Indigenous people are, already have mindfulness practices built into their culture. They don't need... They don't need the white savior, so to speak, to come in and teach them how to meditate. If you've ever done a smudging practice, that is meditation. That is prayer. Mm. Doing a round dance is prayer. Doing any kind of dance is prayer. And, and so where I am, I'm on, on Treaty 6 territory here in Edmonton. And so the, the primary Indigenous cultures here are Cree and Métis. So who am I to come in and instill my beliefs and values that I also learned from another culture, you know, to, to come into this space and be like, no, no, what, you're, what you guys are doing is not right. Because I think that, you know, like the current popular thing to do is, is a second mindfulness and meditation practice. I also think it's really important to go back to the my original statement that we don't see nearly enough people of color within this industry, so to speak, in quotation marks, where I see people of color within it because I choose to seek them out. I choose to learn from other people and how they experience meditation and mindfulness within their cultures. I think that that really does look different. And I think that it's important that if you are within a school and you and you would like to see self-care practices brought in for your staff and or and your children that involve some of these practices like really look at who you're asking to come in and do this so if i can't see myself in that teacher whether it's the color of my skin whether it's my gender whether it's their way of being then i'm not going to feel comfortable enough to take care of myself in that situation Right. So I think especially when we have pockets of cultures, especially within the United States, it's somewhat similar in that way here, too, in Canada, where I want to see myself in that self-care practitioner, whoever they are. And I think that that's especially important for children that, you know, there needs to be this link to direct link to culture or else it's not, yeah. it's not going to fly anyway. It's not going to work. Now, earlier, you also said preschoolers are naturally mindful. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if we can go a little bit more into that of like, what do you mean by that? And then I'm, I'm curious as to when does that stop? And I guess, why does that stop? When we look back to the definition of mindfulness, it's, it's being aware of who you are and what you're doing in the present moment, mm -hmm. recognizing that the present moment continues to march on. This is a moment. Now this is a moment. Now this is a moment. And, and our experience changes within that, whether say at the very basic level in this moment, you're on an inhale. And then on the next moment, you're on an exhale. Um, on this moment, your elbow gets itchy. And then the next moment, it's no longer itchy. In an adult form of mindfulness, that's how we can look at it at the, you know, at the moment to moment level. If you could put yourself into the mind of a, of a preschooler 
and just become the observer, what are you going to see? And you're going to see a child who is pretty much solely focused from an ego-based perspective of getting their needs met. So we know that the job of a child is just to get their needs met, most often through the help of an adult. Even if the help of the adult, when we look at kind of attachment theory, is just being there as a safe island to travel away from and to come back to. So my awareness, and this is for, you know, a typically developing child, because it also changes, right, when we add in layers of developmental challenges, trauma, that kind of thing, right? So just like a typically developing child with an okay enough, a good enough raising, because we know that good enough is good enough when it comes to raising children. What are they aware of in the present moment? They're aware of everything and nothing. And that really is that contemplative lens of like the non-duality of like, it is everything and it is nothing. There is so much to pay attention to. And then there's also this nothingness. And really a child's job is to play. And so if you, if you as an adult have the capacity to think back to the last time that you were maybe in a flow state, you were just overjoyed in like just being truly, truly playful, it is absolutely po- impossible to time travel. And when we, when we observe the mind within a mindfulness or meditation practice, really what we're observing is thought. And the practice of thought most often exists either in the future. So that's future planning. Anxiety exists in the future, right? We're worried about something yeah. that has not happened yet. We create things to be worried about. So that, that doesn't even exist. That also is just a rabbit hole in itself. And then we also time travel into the, into the past of like shoulds or, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Or what if something were different, like living in the what ifs. Very, very rarely, unless a child has had kind of something happen, do they exist there? They're right here in the moment of like, mom, I need a poop, right? Or like, and that is just like this present moment body awareness of like, I have that sensation. It means poop or like, that's mine. Right now, I, all I want in this world is this toy because it's mine. Or all I want to do is slide down that hill one more time because I just know that it makes me feel good. And I think that I would say, I mean, I haven't looked into enough of like where, where we start to lose that. But I'm even noticing it in like my four-year-old niece. I think some of it because childhood has really changed where there's, there's many more societal pressures and maybe conditioning that is mm-hmm. infiltrating the childhood mind earlier. You know, like their environmental influences are just different. I, I don't think that they're necessarily bad. They're just different. So when do we start losing that little bit of present moment awareness mm-hmm. all the time? I don't think I can give you an answer on that, but I think yeah. that that's a really interesting place to start looking because yeah. maybe that's where we start teaching. No, come back to this play, come back yeah. to this okay. presence, I guess. Maybe some benefits of mindful practices in school. So you talked about increasing our ability to kind of contemplate just the moment. You know, my daughter Quinn, she's in the midst of starting to model a mirror in her play. So she's got this little baby doll. She takes the baby baby and she just rocks it oh, right? so nice. she's just contemplating what does this mean for her and then you also said this word play so two things that i believe are vitally important in the learning environment but what is the connection between yes being able to contemplate and play and how can mindfulness help with that i think it's always interesting when you start to talk to adults about play and what their actual concept is of it it fascinates me because instantly adults think that they need to be in control of it so i think overarchingly the benefit of mindfulness is, is operating, your operating system becomes in the present moment more often. I'm someone who's been practicing this for over five years and I still suck at it in that, you know, I still suffer like every other human being. I'm in the process of moving right now and it has fed my anxiety monster quite a bit. And so having a mindfulness practice allows me to reach into that toolbox 
and appropriately address my concerns from a place of present moment awareness in that I know rationally that I cannot be anxious if I'm paying attention to the present moment. So what does that look like for me? I think for children, you can already tell where that might be of benefit. So for example, uh, we, we have seen an increase in, and I'm just saying this from a place of observation. I don't know the research, but I'm pretty sure we could find it. We've seen an increase in anxiety in children. We've also seen an increase in depression in children. So we've seen an increase in future thought. We've seen an increase in obsessiveness. We've seen an increase in worry in children. And we've also seen an increase in worrying about what has already happened and maybe being drawn back into those moments, right? Being drawn back into the past and reliving that. So if we are mindful and if we are in the present moment and doing some kind of practice that keeps us there, even for a small period of time, it is impossible to be anxious or depressed for that moment. And I think that that's one of the best gifts that we can have in having mindfulness within schools. And again, I actually think it's better to start with staff because if we had mindful staff, the kids would, the kids would be fine. So let's say, for example, we had a staff where again, from administration is my job as an administrator to take those worries and hold them for my staff is my job to answer questions as an administrator, full stop. That is my job to answer questions to the best of my ability to put other people's minds at ease. Even if that comes from a place of, I don't know, but I'm going to try my best to find out. What if we had a full staff of teachers who went to every child and said, you know what? I don't know what you're going through, honey, but I'm here and I'm just going to be, I'm going to feel it with you. Or I don't know the answer to that, but I'm going to find out and we're going to talk about it. I see that you're feeling a little bit out of sorts, all mixed up. You know what I like to do when I feel all mixed up? And then that's when we start instituting some of these practices that we know also based in research to bring someone into the present moment, activate those systems that just bring a system back down so that we have access to all of our really smart thinking brains where then we can contemplate. Cause that's the thing. Yes. Meditation and mindfulness involves contemplation, but that's just a fancy word for thinking about stuff. We can't think if we're dysregulated or if we do, those thoughts are typically in the past or in the future. So meditation as a practice is often not really all that calming. If you really think about it, I never use it as a calming practice. I use it as a way to observe how dysregulated I am, which is again, the safety thing. That's why I don't think it's safe for everybody. But if you get to the point where that might be safe, where say, for example, you've got a, you've got a kid that's really going through something and your relationship is safe enough where you can hold that container for that kid and you can be like, okay, you know what? Do you feel okay sitting with this for just one minute? And let's see, and one of the most pivotal questions we ask ourselves in mindfulness is, is that true? Can we contemplate that, right? Say, for example, Sally says that I'm fat and I'm ugly and, and, and I just hate her. And okay, okay, let's take just three deep breaths here and let's just ask ourselves, is that true? And then that can be a jumping off point to then contemplate the truth of that. I think the link to play also is then again, play doesn't exist in the past and it doesn't exist in the future. It's in the here and now. And I think that we don't give our children enough time to do that. Play needs time to evolve. Yeah. Some of the research, and I have, I'm not really up on my research, so I apologize for that, but like around 45 minutes for a typical preschooler to get into a play schema that they can then continue. It takes 45 minutes to create. Creativity is, is in that smart part of the brain. If that's not regulated, you can end up having a bit of this feedback loop. And we see it in our program all the time. Our children that come to us 
from some adverse circumstances where it's difficult for them to even enter into that because they're too worried. Yeah. They're thinking in the future of like, well, if I go get that toy, then that kid's going to steal it from me. So how do I even mitigate that? Like this churning mm-hmm. where a mindful that like being more mindful and being inside the play that, that just dissolves. So yeah. sometimes the challenge within education, I think is finding opportunities for children to play and the older kids get the less opportunities they get to play and it's practice, right? Use it or lose it. And I think a lot of times we're, we are now training children to no longer play. It's funny watching, well, watching myself with Quinn, she's in this state and I'm even kind of just sitting in my own thing of like, how do I play with this little kid, right? Like I haven't truly just played in a long time. So it's, it's just interesting to think about. And the other word that's coming up for me, April, when you say contemplate is curious. We actually talk quite a bit about how curiosity is that really first ingredient that is needed to be able to learn. I think it's interesting that they, they're somewhat in, interchangeable to some degree, right? Yeah. And in within contemplative practice, I love that you brought that up. So we like to talk from the place of beginner's mind. Again, if you're curious, you're in the present moment moment. Yeah. You're thinking about what is, and then you can then future plan from that. But it typically, the future planning that comes, that is bred from curiosity is typically of a positive, it has a positive tone to it, right? I'm really curious about this. And even if, and this is what I love again, when it's safe to do so, when you can go inward within a meditation from a place of curiosity, where let's say, for example, you're dealing with something that's, that feels a bit of adverse, there's stickiness there. There's a, there's an entanglement somewhere of just like, why is this? There's this seeking. And within mindfulness, we try to not dig into the seeking. We try not to be grasping at something because it's always a step too far away versus this sensation of curiosity. One of my favorite teachers, Vinny Ferraro, he, this is like ingrained in me is the phrase right now. It's like this. And you think about all the different ways that you can say that term. You could be like, "Ah, right now it's like this, or you can be like, huh, right now it's like this. So even when you're playing with Quinn, like that's something that you can try as an inquiry practice is like, okay, you're in it. You're on the floor with Quinn. You're rolling around. She's playing with her baby doll. So even just trying to figure something out is much more of an adult thing, Mm -hmm. right? So then peel yourself away from that and try and observe yourself and just be like, okay, right now it's like this. And then just see what comes from that, from answering that question in your observation of your interaction with your daughter or what your daughter is interacting with and see, could you see something through her lens? Can you see it through the lens of just like, there's nothing to figure out here. Mm-hmm. There's nothing to do. There's nothing to do. There's yeah. just to be. And what does it mean for me to be right here in this moment where right now it's like this? And then the next moment right now it's like this. Cause then the next moment, maybe she's crying. And you're like, why the heck are you crying? Peel yourself back. Right now she's crying. There's nothing to figure out here. I already know what's happening. Yeah. Well, I need to figure out why she's crying. No, 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 you don't. Because the next moment is going to show itself because yeah. you're then going to offer her her bottle or you're going to pick her up or she's going to point at something, right? So I love that like it builds in this pause of just like curiosity. What if I can be curious about my anxiety? What if I can be curious about my depression? What if I could be curious about my trauma background? It fully changes changes the lens in which you, you can see yourself in the world. Well, what if I can be curious about learning, you know? Seems like curious. There's a little future mixed in that word. Yep. And, 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 and there is. We're ready for some future. 
Yeah. And there is that forward lean, but it just tends to be a bit more positive. There's nothing yeah. wrong with thinking of the future. There's nothing wrong with planning. We need to do that or else we wouldn't get anywhere. It's this tipping point of when that becomes maladaptive. It's a tipping point where it then becomes overwhelming. Yeah. Planning shouldn't be overwhelming. It should like right before we did this, I did a mindfulness practice of here is my to-do list of things that I need to think about in the future, but that's later. And I can physically put it down so that I can be present here so that my mind doesn't wander over here of like, well, you need to worry about this. It's just like, no, no, no. I have nothing to worry about in this moment. I can write my worries down because these, these, this still exists. As soon as we hang up, this is my list of what I need to do when when we're done. So that's a mindfulness practice of just like, I'm going to put it, I'm going to physically put it down over there so that I can come back here and I can pick it up at any point in time, but I can still be curious about why I need to do this in the first place. Essentially you were insinuating, right? If, if we can create mindful teachers, mindful admin, mindful systems, in turn, the kids will become more mindful, right? We'll create that safe space. I'm curious as to what does that look like? You've been a teacher, you are an administrator right now. It seems like sometimes it's almost impossible for a system that can create this environment. I mean, what comes up for you? The first emotion that comes up to me is frustration. I think that we're all currently frustrated because those of us who choose to look deeper within this construct that is education, And if you choose to really go down that rabbit hole of like, what does it mean to educate a child? I think that we've really gotten off the path. And in my experience of working within um, the Indigenous population, I mean, they, and I know that you guys have experience working within Indigenous populations as well, where it's like, they know what they're doing. And we've gotten so far away from that. And when we look at kind of the purpose of education is still to kind of churn out little workers. So of course, you're going to take away the things that that might not necessarily feed into that system. And I think that the problem with mindfulness is it kind of forces you to wake up a little bit. And I think, unfortunately, and this might be a a, a political statement that we live in a society right now, this westernized society that doesn't want us to wake up because then we become more informed. Like if you really think about it, like if I'm more informed about myself, it all starts with the self. We have to be selfish in order to be selfless. If I'm starting to wake up to myself of like how society and how my conditioning is affecting me, that doesn't bode well for other constructs like possibly education. And that's actually why I got out of teaching, to be completely honest. I had a situation where what I know to be true, where children learn through play and that was not being allowed. And that's true for like all children even looking at high schoolers, right? Even looking as an adult, like I learned best through experiential play. Um, So where mindfulness I think can play a role is that if we have a staff of adults who are aware that their behavior affects others, and if they can have more awareness of how they're showing up in the present moment, to use one of our trauma-informed terms of state-dependent functioning is so important to education and we don't ever talk about it. Can you think about how much it would change the game if simply people came into the school, into the classroom, and the teacher was like, hey, guys, can we have a meeting? And everyone gathers in a circle in the Indigenous tradition where everyone is equal. And the teacher says, you know what, guys, something that might seem benign. My dog died yesterday, and I am heartbroken. Like, that would shut a whole class down. And the kids would be in the present moment right there. And how many other kids could then be like, oh, I cried when my dog died or I don't have a dog or like that is actually mindfulness. 
vulnerability in these small appropriate doses. And then also sharing from this place of just like, this is how I'm feeling. And this is how I'm working through it. Can everyone just sit with me in this for a moment and take a few deep breaths versus what kind of has been happening is like this weekend training. And then we come in and we do a morning check-in and then we, you know, like, oh, everybody let's, you know, let's get our two minutes of mindfulness in here. Let's do this random (laughs) assigned strategy. I don't think it can be strategic. Yeah. And if you really think about it, like, like strategy in itself, strategic planning like it never ends up to what the plan is. And if we if we try and strategically plan mindfulness in schools, I really don't see it working. It has to be natural and it has to come from the top. It has to come from leadership of just like, as a leader, I am choosing to be more mindful and this is how it's going to look for me. And just make it an open invitation. Also, what I've found is people need permission because we're built yeah. into a society where we feel we need to ask permission to do anything. It's ingrained in us. It's, it's conditioned. So start giving people permission to be mindful. Those of us who feel yeah. confident enough to do that, give them the permission by just simply doing it. And that's actually what I did in my old program. So when I came back from my yoga and my mindfulness training, I said, hey guys, you know what? I'm going to stay after school on, I think we did it on Thursdays. I'm going to stay after school on Thursdays and I'm going to do some yoga. And then I also started doing Friday mornings. We didn't have kids on Fridays. So I also started teaching meditation on Friday mornings. And I said, my door's open, come if you want, I'm going to do it. And guess what? People showed up because I gave them the permission to show up. I created this container in which they could come and feel safe to try this. That was it. That's all I needed to do. So I I think we, we try and strategize it too much. We try and worry about the money too much. We try and worry about like everything has to align. It has to be in a spreadsheet. It has to be approved. One of my last meditation classes, they were talking about trial and error. That's all life is. And there's no bad decisions. There's just ones that you learn from and ones that feel good. What if teachers and what if administrators just started making these decisions? Just like, hey, I listened to this podcast and this woman was talking about mindfulness and meditation. What if we started just doing some guided meditations before staff meeting? Let's just see how that lands. Here's the permission. If you don't want to do it, just sit in silence. Look on your phone. No one's going to care baby steps, I think would then do worlds of wonder instead of people thinking that they have to institute this whole big program in order for it to work. It's scary, April, right? I think what comes up for me is for an admin to do this to some degree, there, there is probably this fear of the unknown, which, which makes me want to ask how we can use kind of neuroscience a little bit to take some of the stigma away that this is all, this is just about a religious practice. Yeah, the neuroscience, even like the physiology of what happens in the body when we actively, with intention and purpose, do some of these practices can really help reduce that stigma and reduce that fear. Fear alone is very interesting to me. I think that often what we're afraid of is something that we've created in our own minds. Or it's based on like one other instance where this happens. And I, and I know that that especially true, I think, in the United States and some of how some of your stuff is set up there. Leading on the science can really help where in like you don't even have to mention the words mindfulness or meditation and you can still do some of these practices in a safe way. And again, I truly believe in, in the karma of my actions. I'm not, I'm not willing to lie to anybody in order to get them to meditate. You know, like that's true. That's like the complete opposite. You know, one of my favorite tools that I just learned was this physiological sigh that we can do that can calm the nervous system down. And so what if we just taught people that? 
because in order to do it, you kind of have to be in the present moment and aware of your breath. And in meditation, that's one of the, the primary anchors is your breath. So we, we can get there and we can get there through the science without ever touching religion and without ever saying that we're going to do a mindfulness practice, without ever saying we're going to do a meditation practice. And what if we just use the terminology of like an awareness practice, a breathwork practice? So I think that there is ways that we can get around that fear. And then I also, again, coming back to this being a self-awareness practice is just sitting with that fear as an administrator. What am I truly afraid of? Am I afraid of someone saying no to my idea? Am I afraid that maybe I'm going to try this and I'm not going to be good enough at it? Am I afraid that I am going to receive some kind of backlash? And am I prepared for that? Even just the concept of being afraid of starting these practices in your schools can be an area where you can contemplate and you can do these inquiry practices because doing that, you might actually come up with the answer. And a lot of the answers lie in what we think society is going to say or do. And a lot of that ends up not being true in the end. I want to speak to all the adults, right, that listen to this podcast. So are there are there two things that maybe you could give the adults to say, hey, why don't you just try these two things? Very tangible. And then for specifically those that are listening that then work with others, whether they work with the adults or they work with the kids, are there two things that you can give them? Say, hey, try this with your with your students or hey, try this with your teachers. And I realize I'm putting you on the spot and you're like, oh, this is... <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking I was just like only two. I think the biggest thing to remember is that Western society, it kind of starts with the medical model is that we think that the mind and or like the brain, the head is separate from the body. As soon as we start recognizing that we are one system, that can really be beneficial because a lot of what we deal with in education, when we look at this from like a mental health and behavioral perspective is the mind, this construct that we say that we call the mind. It's the mind's job to think. And sometimes people think that meditation is, is stopping thinking and it's actually the observation of thought. So if we can even just start having these conversations of like, what is thought? And this comes actually from like philosophy. And I think that the fact that we've moved away from philosophy in schools has been a real detriment because it's like philosophy is really the practice of thinking about thought. There's actually a program up here um, called Philosophy for Children. I have a friend who's trained in it where they go into schools and they teach philosophical thinking. So I think that that's also a safe way to enter into this space of like, can we just talk about the construct of the mind? I love this question of like, how did the brain know to name itself the brain? Like that just stops me right there of just like, how does that happen? If we start teaching children and adults, the process of thought, the, the practice of just looking at your thoughts, just sit back and as though your thoughts were on a movie screen, what would you be watching? Where does that thought come from? I'll give you an example. I'm moving currently and in choosing to do my master's at 41 years old, I'm actually choosing to move back in with my parents because then I don't have to go into debt in order to pay for my school. The amount of personal suffering that I imposed on myself, worrying about what other people would think about me moving in with my parents was fascinating. And every single person I spoke to about it, whether it was a close friend or a stranger, all said the same thing. That sounds like an amazing choice. That sounds like the right choice for you. Your parents are going to be so happy to have you home, even if it's temporary. You're going to be able to graduate and have no debt. Who gets to say that? That is a very privileged position to be in. That sounds amazing. Nobody has confirmed the thought that was in my brain. So then you think about it. You're like, where did that thought come from in the first place? 
that is a very deep rabbit hole. Where did that thought come from? So then you can apply that to anything. So number one practice for anybody is start looking at your thoughts. Just look at them. You don't have to go any further than that. Just look at your thoughts. And then the second practice, I would say, where that then connects the brain and body is when you're observing your thoughts, how does it feel in the body to observe your thoughts? And when I work with clients, when I often ask them, how does that feel? They instantly go back up into the cognitive, into the language centers, and they have this whole story about it instead of like, no, no, no. How does it feel in your body? Yeah. Does it feel tight? Does it feel loose? Does it feel hot? Does it feel cold? Does it feel tingly? Like, because when we can get into the body, then that's where the healing actually occurs. That's where we can release it. And we know that from all the research on somatic experiencing as a practice, when we're working with other adults, when we're working with children, like, okay, but how does that actually feel right now? Can we just yeah. stop and just check in there? Because that's where we also get that present moment awareness. I don't feel like this all the time. It's a yeah. moment to moment we know that emotions kind of last anywhere from 30 seconds to maybe a couple minutes. They can be re-triggered, but they don't last forever. Really quick, the third thing that I would say for people is something that I just recently learned that is amazing. So Dr. Andrew Huberman, and he's a neuroscientist out of Stanford, he started a podcast on YouTube. So you can just search him. I highly recommend watching his stuff. And he's introduced what I like to call the double inhale. I can't remember what he calls it, but it invokes a sigh. So Jessica, you'll see this in your daughter where she gets really, really upset. And then you know when she's kind of towards the end of it where they kind of do this shuddery inhale. <laughs> We've all seen that. And we've done it too. Like when you're really sobbing and you know, you're getting to the end of it, that's actually a natural break to the system and we could replicate it. And so it's simply a double inhale. We can do it here right now. So you just inhale normally through the nose and then you inhale a little bit more and then you exhale through the nose or the mouth and you just want your exhale to be longer than your inhale. That's it. Slows the heart rate down, increases vagal tone. Even just doing two of those breaths of a double inhale and an exhale physiologically slows the system down and gets you back on track. And it's actually been researched that it does it faster than any other kind of breath work that we've researched so far. So teach your kids how to do that. Teach your staff how to do that. Before you even started a staff meeting, what if everyone just did that? Calm down the whole room, even in a Zoom room. And there's no religion attached to that. That's just pure science. So science science. <laughs> um, you know, you were just saying like, how does it feel? And, but I'm in positions regularly in school that I'm consulting on a student. And I think we forget kind of the, the scaffolding that is being able to identify how you feel. And sometimes they skip the most important pieces, like the physical sensation. We skip all of this connection to the body. We're like, well, what are you going to do? What are the coping skills? So when your teacher says this, well, you can't throw your, you can't throw the chair across the room. So what are you going to do different? It's like, we're putting the cart way before this horse because they don't even know what this physical sensation means. So I, I appreciate that. Like you have to connect the mind and the body and, and function as one system. And I think it combines kind of the top down approach of labeling. So that's what we're doing there is we're noting. Yeah. I feel sad is a noting practice in meditation and it's top down. But then it combines it with the bottom up of like, okay, but what's the visceral feeling? And you don't have to put a word to it. You just have to be aware of this is how it feels to be in my body right now when I'm experiencing this emotion that I can label with a word. 
Thank you. I was so in this moment. <laughs> I'm not even joking. I looked at the time and I was like, oh my gosh, we're at 50 minutes already. <laughs> I did not do my job today as timekeeper. Yeah, yeah. I was like, like my job here is done. My job here is done. Yeah, yeah. see, I did, I did my job. You said, sorry, really quick, before we can cut this out either way. <laughs> you mentioned, and it was, was a huge light bulb moment for me of how we're so strategic in planning like mindfulness activities. And it's so counterintuitive with what everything you just said, because planning is future oriented. And so we're taking away that, like, let's be in this moment, let's be present. And okay, this moment is here, we're gonna address this right now. But no, we're so focused on like, no, we have to plan for this next Thursday, we'll do our mindfulness for 20 minutes, it doesn't make sense with everything Mm -hmm. that you just explained. Yeah. And everything can be mindful. So what comes to mind when you say that is this Buddhist concept of sweeping the garden. If you would to like parallel our current lives with say a monk, everything they do is mindful. Sweeping the garden is just something that gets done, but you have the choice to show up in that mindfully. And so there's nothing strategic about it. If we're too strategic about it, then it loses all its magic. But if we start dropping in this, these like little seeds of like, here, try this of just like, Hey, can we just pause for a minute and just like recognize what what happened right there? Can we just notice? Like, this is just a noticing practice. All we're doing is noticing. If you're strategic about it, then it's almost like you have to plan what you're going to notice. And that just completely defeats the purpose. Yeah. April, thank you for joining us today. You're welcome. You've gifted us so much and thank you for doing the good work and changing the system.